0: my wax museum is a proud member of the creative grapevine hey real quick before we get into today's show just another reminder that we would love it if you left us a review you can do that right while you're listening to the podcast actually you can just go to ratethispodcast.com and leave us a review there now on to the show <music> Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm your host, Alex Williams, and today I'm joined by Brendan Kumarasamy. We have a really great conversation on what his experience was like as the son of two Sri Lankan immigrants in Montreal, Canada. Now, of course, as promised, we do talk about how exactly it is that he karaoke's in five different languages, so stay tuned for that. And remember... After today's show, make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Brandon Kumarasame, welcome to My Wax Museum.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you on here, um, an, a fellow Canadian. Uh, I don't think many of my guests lately have been Canadian. So let's start with how we know each other. Do you want to tell the, the story as you remember it of how we got in touch?
1: Sure. I mean, I messaged you on Matchmaker and I said, hey, I'm happy to talk about my failures on your show. And you said, sure. So I talked about a cease to desist letter I got. I talked about uh, being garbage on camera for the first year that I was starting the YouTube channel. And uh, what was the other? Oh, yeah. And messaging tenured university professors who sent me the worst hate emails I ever got in my life. So that's how we met. It was a great start to our relationship.
0: Yeah, it was really great. And we should specify it was matchmaker.fm. I think there's probably a different matchmaker uh (laughs) website for couples um but yes this is true (laughs) so great (laughs) (laughs) i'm like just so we're clear uh yes i go on dating websites to find podcast guests that's 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 how i work i mean (laughs) why not right i
1: I would never get in the way of your relationship with your queen
0: never i'll never do that so um (laughs) So yeah, so we met on there and I, I had you on Broken Bulbs, which is funny because the Broken Bulbs episodes will actually be out after this episode um, by at least a month. So that's, it's kind of interesting. I did, we recorded that previously. We had a great conversation on Sunday as of this recording. That means nothing in the grand scheme of this release, but we had a great conversation and I was like, I've got to have you on Um my wax museum. I want to chat more, see what you're about. And so uh, I guess let's find out what you're about. Uh, where are you from originally? Where were you born?
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm born and raised in Montreal. My parents are from Sri Lanka, though.
0: Oh, cool. Okay. So born and raised in Montreal with uh, Sri Lankan parents. Was there... Uh, I'm curious if you felt... Did you feel like an immigrant at all, despite being like born in Canada, just because you had immigrant parents? Like, what was that experience like?
1: Mm, it's an interesting way of starting the conversation. Yes and no, definitely. There's definitely nuance there. And I'm happy to explain that. So there's definitely areas in which I didn't feel like an immigrant at all, namely my accent I didn't have one, right? Or the fact that I spoke the language, but didn't really speak it that much and mostly spoke French outside of outside of the home. But what, what, and most immigrants will, or second generations so of people who didn't, weren't, weren't immigrants, but were born in an immigrant family can relate to this, where there's a clash of values between what we believe and what our parents might believe to be true. I'll give an example in my culture. So arranged marriages are very normal. You know, my parents got an arranged marriage. A lot of my cousins got arranged marriages, even if they live in Canada, so naturally, I was presented with the same opportunity. I guess that's what we call it, kind of like network marketing. You know, you want you an opportunity. So obviously, I said, no effing way. Like, I'm not getting an arranged marriage. I'm like 24. Like, I don't want to get married. And if I do, I'm, I don't, it's, it didn't, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just saying it wasn't for me. So it's a clash of values. So I'm always just surprised. She's like, what are you talking about? Look at all these amazing people that we can match you with. Like, it's like Matchmaker just. This this is the actual match made like FM right where we met and I kind of just said no like I'm not gonna do that uh, or other things that happened in my childhood like my parents would not let me eat at other people's homes that weren't of my own ethnicity it made no sense right I was just like what are you talking about like they're right there the neighbors are really nice you know them like it's not, yeah so she, so she like slapped me on the butt whenever I did that it was kind of funny or I wouldn't I wasn't allowed to sleep over either at people whose ethnicities wasn't my own. So, but obviously this has changed over the years, right? Like they obviously don't believe that anymore through conversations, but it's just interesting in that clash of values that we have, whether it's immigrant value versus versus where I am. But I think where the tie-in lies is it's a mix, right, Alex? In the sense of, there are definitely values that I stand by in my culture that I'm going to inculcate in the next generation. So my kids, when I have them someday, but there's also values that I would never do. Like the whole sleeping, not being allowed to sleep over at your friend's house when you're eight, like, come on, you can do that. But I'll give an example of one that I am sticking by. I think it's absurd that most people don't take care of their parents. Like in the sense of like, they put them in these retirement homes where they know nobody. Like for me, that, that sounds like treason. In my opinion, I equate that to treason. Most people wouldn't. I do personally, that's why I retired my mom when she was 52. And she lives with me, right, and my mom and my grandpa. So those kind of things, you know, most conventional Western people wouldn't do. But that's something I'm sticking on to, right? So those kinds of things.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So you kind of get to have this uh, mixture of cultures that, that you take in and create your own, uh, create your own identity out of. So um, kind of on that on that same line, you mentioned in in our quick questions um, beforehand that I that I always ask um, that people can go and find the the answers to on Instagram. Um, you you mentioned that you can karaoke in eight languages. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, so fill me in a little bit because obviously you mentioned you speak French. You grew up in Montreal. You obviously speak English, um, and I'm I'm assuming you speak. Uh, a language with your family. Um, so fill me in on all of these languages and and why you can at the very least karaoke in eight of them.
1: Absolutely. So, so for the record, I speak English, French, and Tamil. So Tamil is a language that's spoken a lot in India, Singapore, and Sri Lanka. And outside of those three languages, I can also karaoke in Korean, Mandarin, Japanese, Hindi, in Spanish. You know, I used to get the ordering wrong. I would forget some languages, but since so many people ask, you know, I'm like, now I know the five languages. So how did that happen? Right. So when I was in in college, this is before I started university and I started doing the master talk communication stuff. I used to play this game called league of legends and I was really good at it. So I would, anyways, it's it, for those who don't know, it's this big video game that used to be like all the rage a couple of years ago. And I played that very competitively. So I would go to competitions and I like, compete in tournaments and things like that. But so, but I don't know, not to be racist or anything, but a lot of the people who played the are Asian, right? A lot of you know, South Asian, or you know, from China or something, or from Vietnam or different these cultures. And what they do for fun when they go out to drink or have fun is they don't like go to dinner; they go to karaoke. So obviously, naturally, because I was I was a huge gamer back then, a lot of my friends were Asian. So they said, "You want to go to karaoke?" And I was like, "No, like, why would I want to do that?" But then after they asked me the third time. I just said, ah, oh, you know what? I might as well just come get a bite to eat, you know? And it's like having dinner with somebody and go. So I went into my first karaoke room and I loved it. I was like, this is awesome. We started like yapping in like English, but then this, the language started changing. You know, people started singing in Japanese and Korean. But for them, it was their native tongue, right? It was their native language. Uh, and then I was just there like, oh, well, I don't know this, so this is kind of awkward. But here's the thing with these individuals is they go to karaoke every month. So I was like, well, I might as well just practice. And I, I'm a huge fan of anime. So like Death Note, all these different shows I loved. So I was already used to Japanese culture. So I just started learning a lot of these songs. Once again, didn't know how to speak them, but I knew how to pronounce the words. So then I just became all the rage. I just started karaoke every month and all that stuff. And then one language led to another. I don't know a how many people say that, but one language did lead to another. And now I probably listen to 10 different languages and I can sing in eight of them.
0: That is Amazing. Do you and like what's your what's your comprehension level like, or is it just looking at the screen and pronouncing the words that show up? It's zero.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much zero. So 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 let's say for example, like Spanish. Like now, if you told me to sing a song, I wouldn't know. Like I would the song would need to be playing while I was going, and now I can do it. But I don't understand a single word. Like don't get me wrong. There's some there's some things that I can say right like, that I understand. Like so for example, uh, in Japanese good morning, how are you, is, ohayo gozaimasu, genki desu ka, right? And I can pronounce that well, right? And it's kind of funny kind of in this interplay with public speaking. The best way to actually pronounce words better has nothing to do with practicing it on its own because you'll get bored really quickly. I like apples. Alex likes the queen. Like, it's just not going to, it's going to be boring. But if you learn to sing songs not well, just know how to pronounce them, in languages you don't understand, it's super easy to then pronounce words you do understand in the language you know it. So, for example, if I go, bonjour comment which is French or Japanese, like I demonstrated, or Korean when I go, um, nacio, which is high in Korean, notice in those four intertwines, those, those four phases, my accent didn't change. Why is that? That's because it's practiced.
0: Hmm interesting interesting so so you obviously have an interest in in languages um, what was what was it like kind of going back to your childhood growing up speaking a variety of languages
1: you know it's funny i actually don't have an interest at all in languages but i'm happy to still speak really? on that <laughs> i have an interest yeah yeah not not at all it just so happened i learned i knew how to speak three cuz my mother tongue is tamil so i had to speak it right i went to a daycare when i was 3 that's how I learned English. And for French, I grew up with it. So it had nothing to do with me wanting to learn more languages. It was like now I, I try learning Mandarin. I gave up after two weeks. Like I don't really care to learn more. It was just more about singing stuff. But what I liked about the question was this idea of like, what did I learn from speaking different languages? And what did I get from that experience? And that I can definitely answer. So what, what, ha- what I learned personally is, is this idea of your ability to understand where other people come from. So for me, because of just the way that I was raised, the number of languages that I speak, I can relate to a lot more people and their cultures. So it's not that I don't, I don't particularly have an interest in other people's languages, but I have a strong interest in other people's cultures and how they think about the world. Like I'm very obsessed about the truth. And that started with that ability to know multiple languages. And plus, as a side note, whenever you're inside Montreal, no one cares that you speak French. But if you go to like the States, and you start speaking French, people are crazy about you. They go, whoa, Brendan, you look from France? And I was like, whoa, what do you mean? Like, I was like, oh this is cool. So it's 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 like not exciting at all to speak French in Montreal. No one cares. But it's super cool to speak French in New York where nobody speaks French. It's super fun. So that's that's a cool thing. But it's this idea of I'm very obsessed with how people think rather than the language that they speak.
0: Okay, interesting. So um how do you think it had an impact on the way that you think growing up speaking these three
1: languages? I would probably say when you know multiple languages, what tends to happen, Alex, is you start, because if you know a language really well, it's also because you understand the cultural context of that language really well. So for example, in French, right? So there's tu and vous. I won't make this a history lesson, don't worry. But the the idea is tu is very informal. So I, so I would say, how are you? Like, it's very like, you know, buddy, buddy. But vous is a form of respect. So let's say you go up to somebody, like, comment ça va, which is how are you, which is very informal, versus comment allez-vous when we're addressing the queen? Like, it's more formal. English doesn't have that interplay on words. There's, it's not as obvious as it's, as it's built in. But what's interesting is it also talks, it, there's also a lot more meaning behind the culture. So a lot more of the Quebec culture in Montreal is a lot more informal, a lot of people are informal with each other, whereas in France, things are a lot more formal in the way that you speak to each other. So that's sort of how it, it interplayed with with how I saw the world, was I started to understand a lot more cultural context that I otherwise wouldn't have.
0: Yeah, that, that is very fascinating. Have you, I'm curious, because obviously in Montreal, they speak both French and English, as well as, you know, plethora of other languages, depending what you know, people you're interacting with. But um, have you had the opportunity to go to Sri Lanka and and speak, uh, Tamal, with the, the family and friends and things that um, the people that you know there?
1: It's been a long time, actually. The last time I went to Sri Lanka was in 2003. So it's been 18 years since I last went, which was, so it's probably seven. Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm going to go back for a while. I know my, my mom, I'm going to bring my mom next year. But I don't know if I'm gonna go. I'll probably go want to explore other parts of the world. But uh, Sri Lanka is definitely on my bucket list. I have to go back at some point.
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm curious. I've never I've never been. Um, what What was it like that experience as a kid?
1: Jeez, man. I wish I remembered a lot, but I'll, I'm happy to talk about what I do remember. I hated it, to be honest. I didn't like it. Uh, not Not because I didn't like the people. I just I just um... <laughs> I just didn't like the vibe. Like, everyone was very complacent. Everyone was just doing whatever else wanted them to do. No one was really thinking outside the box. But it was also a very relaxing environment. You don't have the same pressures that you do, like in Canada or the US, where it's like you need to win, you need to do big things in life. So, there's definitely pros and cons. But I think for me, like, just, you know, dealing with the whole like third world way of living, like this whole like, you know, like being in a potty outdoors and stuff, it was very, it built my resilience a lot. I still remember that. For sure you know it smelled bad all the time <laughs> and it wasn't the people it was just like i don't know the air Good. just the way that it was so, so it was a challenging time that's why i'm not very excited to go back to be honest but let's say you contrast that with my mom like she's really excited to go back right and the reason is because you know that's her home country in the same way like i at the end of the day i am canadian like i'm born here this is the culture i'm used to so for me, interacting with different ethnicities all the time is just something I want to do, is something I need to do to stay like, you know, to keep all perspectives in mind when I'm making decisions.
0: Right. So, I I mean, you're probably more um, culturally fascinated and more culturally aware now than you were when you were seven. Um, I mean, right? Like like anybody, anybody would expect that. So do you think your experience would have been different if you went for the first time now rather than back then
1: i 100 percent agree with you I, I i'm sure i would learn something new from going back to my home country after many 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 years and i think there's a lot of lessons i think for me there, there's there's a bit of friction between it's opportunity cost, right? So for those who don't know, no, opportunity cost simply means you pick something over something else. When you gain something, you lose something. So for me, it's just, uh, I haven't really seen the world yet because I was in poverty most of my life. And poverty doesn't mean I was like dying or anything. Poverty means like I couldn't go on the extra flight. Like I haven't, before, until last year, I hadn't traveled, I hadn't taken a flight in like five years or something, right? So for me, it was just this idea of exploring the world So there's a lot of conferences i still want to go to there's a lot of things i'm more like i was supposed to in amsterdam this month like all month right and do all that stuff so i feel i need to get that off my chest first before i go back to my home country but that could easily change but but you know the ordering but i but i definitely agree with you
0: hey future alex here just popping in again to make that simple request leaving a review really does help the show grow it helps us in rankings, it helps people be able to see what they can expect and what type of person might be interested in listening to the show. So if you listen to this show, even just this one time and you liked it, or even if you didn't, feel free, please, to leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com slash wax. Again, that is ratethispodcast.com slash wax. Now, back to the show. I, I'm curious, as you kind of grew up and and got out of the the environment you were living in uh, as a, as a kid, uh, where did you go? Like after graduating high school, uh, what was the next step outside of Montreal, or even, I guess, perhaps staying within Montreal?
1: Of course. So, so what happened after high school is, so anyways, backstory is when I was twelve, a career counselor comes up to us and goes, you know, you should think about your career. Obviously, when you're 12, you don't only care, but you know I saw that as an opportunity to care about it because obviously I wanted to make some money. You know, my parents were minimum wage workers, so I went home and I and I started by canceling out all the careers I didn't want to do. So lawyer, judge, uh, pastor, plumber—I just went through all of them, and then I ended up with accounting, and I never changed my mind. So after a universe after. High school, I had a very specific goal. I wanted to be a chief financial officer of a company, which is like the highest ranking official that anyone could get in accounting. So I went went to study in commerce uh, at Dawson College in Montreal to, to achieve that goal. So that was next for me. So I studied really hard. All I cared about was grades and I didn't really care about much else. So it was a pretty boring two years. It was mostly just study, study, study and game, game, game like crazy. And then after when I got to university, that's when my life really changed a lot. You know, I stopped playing video games. I started going to networking cocktails in an oversized Sears suit. And for those who know, Sears is a bankrupt company now. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. uh, That's probably more intriguing for this conversation. So when I was in my first semester of business school, I was all big talk for the past seven years. I wanted to be the chief financial officer, but I had no idea what that was or what it did. I kind of just said, oh, it's a great way to get out of poverty. So I learned about this company called Price Waterhouse Coopers. So for those who don't know, which is probably most of you, uh, Price Waterhouse is a big accounting firm. So I thought that Price Waterhouse was a water bottling company. So I went to an info session in sweatpants. Literally, I, I get to the info session I go, oh, this is not a water bottling company. And this is like, a lot of people are in suits and I don't know why. So I sit in the back. they were explaining what it was. They were yapping. I was like, I should probably get a job in this company. And so yeah, I just started focusing on that going to networking cocktails in oversized suits, and for some reason they gave me a job, and then life took off from there.
0: That's awesome. So you you do school, you show up um thinking you're you're looking at a water bottling company, um, which like PWC's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, accounting firm in the world. And so you you head up. They they give you a job. Um, what was that experience like working there?
1: I know this sounds weird. It was really life changing. It was it was the day that I realized that I wasn't going to be poor anymore. That my parents didn't have to struggle anymore. Because just to give people an idea, for those who are familiar with that world, if not, I'm going to try my best not to bore you as much. Working at the Big Four is really challenging. You work a lot of hours, but it changes your standard of living. Like you go from you know, you know, schmuck on the student to, you know, you work your eyes off, but if you work there for 10 years, you will be in the top 1% of earners within the country. That's just how the structure works. It's a pyramid thing where you kind of, most people don't make it. People who do kind of get to the end and around three to 5% of any given accounting school or business faculty gets into one of these companies. So I spent 14 months networking, getting a bunch of experiences, doing a bunch of these competitions that I talked about. And that's actually why I ended up getting really good at communication really quickly. Because I was meeting senior executives when I was 20. I remember I I met a a very senior executive at Ernst & Young, which is another big accounting firm. And I was still in my oversized (laughs) seer suit. I was carrying Ray Dalio's Principles, his book, just to look smart, even if I was pissing my pants, I was too scared to read it. And then I met a bunch of these senior executives when I was 20, and one of them gave me a job, so that's kind of how I landed it. But but yeah, it was a lot of fun. The summer internships are really cool. You kind of just hang out with a bunch of students, who play volleyball, and you get paid to do nothing, essentially. And then they work you to the bone when you start working full-time.
0: That is really cool. Um, and I think I think, at least as far as I know, you're the first person I've interviewed who's worked... For one of the big four, um, and and so it's interesting to kind of hear more about that about that experience, what it's like being there. Um, I'm curious, is it is it something that um, you found great satisfaction in
1: doing? absolutely so, so let's kind of look at this from different lens because what does satisfaction really mean right so in the sense of like do i think did i think I w- it was going to change my life that i was work going to work on meaningful projects and that i was going to make a big dent on society absolutely not right that's not what the big four is for you know the reason they make a lot of money is because they service a lot of big clients they have a lot of big corporate accounts and obviously those impact projects the people that are fantastic nothing bad to say about the experience but we're not there to make a difference right we're there to make money and you know to feed our families and to gain the experience we need to be chartered professional accountants. But I think for me, the thing that was satisfying, I remember was the one, one moment that I remember really well, I was at this restaurant in Toronto called the King, right? So it was like an internship thing, dinner, and it was a fancy place, like probably a hundred dollars per person. So I, someone like me, Alex being transparent here that I've never been a restaurant like that. Most of, most of the times I've never spent more than 30 bucks on a meal. Like anything more than 30 bucks, I would I would even go to the rest. Like the keg, for those who know what that is, huge, like no way, would never go there. I would look at it and go, look at all these people like eating at the steak, I would never go there. So this was, so I was sitting there and I couldn't believe it. Like I was sitting there and they were paid, obviously paid for the meal, right? I didn't pay for this. And, but was really, it was so weird just to give people an idea because how this works, and I know most of you know this, but let me recap. Some restaurants you have like little mini dishes, right? So they have like eight courses, and I'm sitting there thinking, why? I was literally thinking, why are you replacing my dish? Like, I, I feel bad for the people like washing the dish. Just keep the same plate, dude. Like, I can just lick off of it. And then my manager looked at me and he was like, All right, "That's a joke, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely." And I was just like, "This is not a joke." So I was telling my friends, I was like, "Dude, there's like eight plates here," and they were like, "Yeah, dude. Like, haven't you ever been to a fancy restaurant?" I was like, "No." So anyways, so, so in that part was really satisfying, right? Kind of just sat there. It didn't last very long, if I'm being honest, like the satisfaction, but in that moment, like I realized a lot of my hard work paid off. So it was definitely satisfying in that moment.
0: And are you, are you still at PWC or are you moved on to something else now?
1: Yeah, so, so after Price, what ended up happening was, um, I ended up pursuing bigger, more lucrative careers. So just to give context for people, in business school, there's three careers, that can make you multiple six figures besides sales. One, and the, by the way, for the record, the reason I was so focused on money was just to get out of poverty. Whenever you do have something, you focus. You tend to focus more on it. That's just life. And obviously, as you can imagine, with Master Talk, that evaporated really quickly too. So, one is investment banking. So that means working in a in a big bank. Second one is to work in accounting at, P, like at a big for accounting firm and climbing up the ranks. The third thing is what, what we call management consulting. So you work as a consultant at one of the big consulting firms and you start to get a job there. The issue though, is one of the three is much easier to get than the others. So accounting, despite how competitive getting a job at PwC or Deloitte is, accounting is not that bad. They hire like 30 interns every year. It's not like super, super competitive. But consulting and investment banking They hire very, very little people. So let's say the same PwC that would hire 30 people, Accenture hires two, right? So it's a lot more competitive. So a good comparison for people is in consulting, even the smartest people don't get a job, right? So you're competing against really smart people. And my dream was to always be a consultant. The reason is because I love case competitions. Like I'd done all these business competitions in university. That was my life. I'd competed in 60 of these bad boys. I'd presented over 500 times. Like that's what I wanted to do, right? And obviously it was for the money too. I'm not going to lie. But it was also for like, man, I get to solve problems every day. Like this is what I want to do. And I get to live that dream every day at IBM. Honestly, it's a blessing. But I think the idea was, well, it was a whole new level of competition. So I wanted to secure the job at PwC first. And then once I had that secure and I had nothing left to lose because I had a return offer to go there after I graduated, I went all in on consulting recruitment, cracked a bunch of cases. And just for context for people, how case interviews work is it's not like a regular interview where it's like, hey, Alex, let me ask you 15 questions about life. Then we'll talk about the Wax Museum and see what happens. No, no, no. This is, hey, Alex, there's a problem in our business. What do you think? And you have to build a solution now. So I ended, up, I, ended up, was, I ended up being successful in that recruitment. So I joined IBM as a technology consultant after that.
0: Interesting, interesting. And so you're ne- there now?
1: That's correct. That's my day job.
0: And, and what has that experience been like? Has it been you know, a, a big opportunity for growth for you in that career?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the biggest difference between consulting and let's say working at an account, in an accounting firm in accounting is you have access to much higher level people. So like, I'm always talking to senior level executives and things like that, but I'm like 23. And I started IBM when I was 22. So you have a lot more exposure. They pay you a lot more, obviously. And the experience is a lot more interesting. So, you know, I fly out a lot around the world. I did did a project in Portugal last month, which is a lot of fun. Obviously it was virtual, but like my senior flew out a couple of times. You know, you do a lot more international work, but it's it's demanding also, right? You're traveling a lot and it's a lot of hours. But I think for me, once again, it was this. It was this. I'm just super grateful. You know, a lot of people complain about working consulting because you work a lot, yeah, and it's tough sometimes. You know, like one day I did like a, I came into the office at 9 a.m. I left at 4 a.m. Like not uh, 4 p.m. It was really intense, right? But once again, I was just so grateful. Like when I onboarded for two weeks, they like served me breakfast every morning, like actual real breakfast, like eggs and stuff. For, I know for people, this sounds crazy, but to someone like me, I always skipped breakfast. I either couldn't afford it or I didn't want to spend time making it. So I was like eating bacon and like eggs and all this. And like the hotel people calling me, sir. And I was like, please don't call me, sir. I'm a kid. They, they treated me really well and they still do. Right. So I, there's definitely perks to the job. I think a good segue here into master talk would happen was, was I kind of just lost that purpose like for me it's it's I, for me what excites me the most is always playing a new game it's the chase right when it was university it was case competitions right being the best winning the gold medal much like professional athletes is the same a good analogy right when it was getting a job in accounting that was the thing i had no business connections i had to do it nobody else to rely on just on me hustle 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 got the job and then i was depressed and then i got a job in consulting and i was like hustle 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 i don't even know how i got the job to be honest barely got it went through and then i started and i realized on the record that i was going to move up in this company really quickly like i just so intense like i had done so many competitions alex i was just as smart as a lot of the executives in the company just because i was more productive like i I literally know all the keyboard shortcuts on powerpoint like control f down control f2 like I'm, I'm just 10 times more efficient right so i started getting bored i started just saying okay well i'm going to be an executive at ibm before i'm 30 i'm going to make a lot of money i'm going to get my bmw my nice car so what now and i got lucky that master talk fell on my lap in the right time in the right moment in time because if i was born 30 years ago this wouldn't even exist I would be an executive at a company. You would be a high school teacher. You'd probably still make a difference in the educational system, but we wouldn't have our own media companies. There wouldn't be an opportunity to do this. But now because of the time I was in kind of just, I had a choice. Do I want to spend my life at IBM? And part of me still does, to be honest. I love it there. Honestly, my decision would be a lot easier if I hated the people there, but I I really don't just honest. I love the people. I love the work. But MasterTalk gives me an opportunity to do something more with my life so I just I just decided to take it
0: and so um, that you know that's another huge part of your life right now especially um, so so tell us a little bit about um, what you do at MasterTalk before we start moving into the, your uh, future
1: yeah for sure master talk is a YouTube channel I started to help the world master that of communication public speaking and the way the way that happened I guess as that timeline since we're're kind of here now is from that intense case competition experience, like just to give people a glimpse, just a small taste of what this was. A lot of our coaches are senior level executives who are alumni of the program. So instead of having dinner with their family, they would come and watch our presentation. And I joined the program when I was nineteen, twenty ish So you can imagine the ego I had. I was one of the 80 people in the program. There's 8,000 people in the school. I'm in the top 1%. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. And then I met my coach. And then I presented. And he looked at me and he just started laughing. So you call this a presentation? You ever present like this and you won't hear the last of it. It was super intense. Like people, just to give people an idea of how intense this was. In our interview, so I recruited, as you can imagine, because I'm the kook here. I started recruiting next year's generation. And when you get to the final round interview, if you tell us that you plan on taking a week or two vacation during the holiday break, like for Christmas and stuff, (laughs) we'll laugh you out of the room. Like you're not joining this program. The last three Christmases I spent with delegates. I was crazy, maniacal, right? Because our competition is the first week of January. But anyways, the reason why I'm mentioning that, Alex, is because I learned decades worth of communication experience in the span of a few years. I became the youngest speech coach in the world, essentially, because I was so intense about it. So how this transitioned was, I, you know, starting IBM and all that stuff. And a lot of people that I coached back in the day kept asking me how I learned how to speak and I never had a good answer. I just never knew, kind of just said, whatever. But after the 25th person asked me, I kind of just asked, I was just curious what's out there, Started watching a bunch of videos on YouTube on public speaking. And I was vomiting in my mouth for 12 hours. Stress like, what is this? Like there's people who had like 75,000 subscribers on their YouTube channel. And this is their video on managing vocal tones. Hi, everyone. Today we're going to learn how to manage vocal tones. I was like, dude, are you serious? Like, really? I was so mad. I was really pissed off, frankly. started making videos in my mother's basement, literally right there in that room. And I sucked, but I just kept p- making them every week. No intention of doing this full-time. IBM, all in, still going to do this. But then time went by, and I started getting better on camera. Then I went professional, and here we are today.
0: That's awesome that it kind of you know started out as just something that you wanted to do because you saw that there was a need for it. And then you, you move forward with it, and you're like, yeah, actually, I, I like this and I, I'm enjoying doing this. So uh, kind of projecting out to the future as we lead into the tail end of this interview, projecting out, um, what are some of the biggest things that you'd like to see uh, down the road?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the idea for me when I started Master was pretty simple, right? And I think that's the takeaway for everyone listening right now is make a decision, right? Passions are unlimited. Passions are general. Passions are vague. They don't get you anywhere in life. You keep asking yourself what you're passionate about, you're going to run into a dead end, in my opinion. Except for the people who found their passion, don't listen to me. But for everyone else, which is 99% of you, that's stupid advice. What you want to do is make decisions. I made the decision to get out of poverty. I made the decision to get a job in accounting. I made the decision to be a corporate accountant. I made the decision to be a technology consultant. And if I never made any of those decisions, even if I missed one of them, I would not have the expertise to be coaching and even having this discussion today, right? And that's the key. So when I started Master Talk, as you can imagine, making videos in my basement, I thought it was a stupid idea the first eight months, to be frank. But over time, I realized what the bigger picture was. And the bigger picture was, there are people in this world who have amazing ideas and don't have the resources to share them. They don't have access to a speech coach. They don't have access to the best communication information in the world. And I think that's ridiculous. I think that's unfair because the only reason I became this woke, quote unquote, is because of the podcasters and the people like you who came before us. Think about people like Lewis Howes, right? Didn't have to start a podcast. That dude had a multi seven figure business. He had no reason to start a show. He just did it to add value to people. And I listened to every episode. In the catalog that's how i learned so quickly and i believe it's a moral responsibility not because i'm a good person not because i'm generous but because of the generosity of the people before me that i should democratize this information because everyone else who's a speech coach isn't doing it and it pisses me the hell off that's one part of the equation the other part that i realized is that dale carnegie was born in the wrong time period of history so those who don't know I'm sure all of you know Dale Carnegie is the author of the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, 30 million copies sold worldwide, except one problem. We don't have a single video because he was born at the wrong time. We don't know how he speaks and we don't know what he sounds like. We just have a, a book. And I, for some random reason, was born in the early, you know, late 1990s. Case competition started rising up in the early 2000s. I jumped on that wave, learned communication skills that take nor- takes people normally 30 years to master in three years. And I have this opportunity that Dale didn't, which is democratizing the whole thing. So when I die, unlike Dave, because I was just born in the right time period in history, a hundred years later after him, that people can learn from me forever. And that's the ultimate goal for Master Talk.
0: I love that. To wrap it up here, this is how I always, always finish the conversation, is for you at the end of your life, obviously you've done Uh, master talk and you've had these amazing experiences and and democratized as you say this this knowledge and understanding that you've managed to gain over your life so far but at the end of your life when you're looking back at all of it what do you look back on and just feel pleased with
1: Everyone's going to give you a different answer, I'm sure. And I'm sure you've gotten some interesting responses. But I think for me personally, I derive my happiness in a way that very few people do. I mean, I'm a part of a very small percentage of people. And it doesn't mean that means I'm important or anything. It just means the way that I perceive happiness is different. For those who haven't seen the free solo documentary. So Alex Honnold is a free solo climber. That means climbing without rope. And he, and he climbed the biggest wall, one of the biggest walls in the world. And what I understood from his documentary is what I understood about myself. That for him, being happy wasn't about having a family, though that's something I do want. It wasn't about you know having coffees with people or just relaxing. It was about doing something great, doing something amazing, doing something that only you can do. Whether it was case competitions for me, because for me back in the day, getting a job at PwC was like that equivalent how could someone like me get a job there how could someone like me win case competition yet alone get selected and now it's doing master talk the person who needs master talk the most this summarizes it pretty well is not the people who listen to me it is me because i need to be doing something great because if i'm not doing something great i am just depressed i am sad i'm not happy it's just the way that my brain is wired it's the way that it lived my life so for me, the one thing that i look back into my life, the number one thing is that I did something great and that I was able to do something important with it. And then I'll die in peace.
0: I think that's something everyone uh, could aspire to. Final question, I guess, is where can people find you and and get involved in the things that you're up to?
1: Absolutely. I always say I'm not famous or anything. So feel free to just message me on Instagram at masteryourtalk questions comments insults complaints don't be shy if you want to check out my youtube channel and learn all the public speaking tips that i teach for free on the channel that's master talk in one word
0: excellent well brendan thank you very much for joining me today thank you and thank you for listening not just to this show which we certainly do appreciate but more to the people around you the people in your life that you just happen to know. Take some time, just five minutes, to listen intently to the people around you. Mecco,